don't ask yourself what you should add. Think of what you could subtract in your life that would take away the obstacles. And then, yeah, being calm, relaxed, and happy is your default state when nothing's wrong. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Famous Failures, where I interview the world's most interesting people about their failures and what they learn from them. I'm your host, Ozan Varol. Today's guest on the show is Derek Sivers. Derek is one of my favorite thinkers and authors. He has lived many, many lives. He has been a musician, a producer, a circus performer, an entrepreneur, a speaker, and book publisher. His book, Anything You Want, 40 Lessons for a New Kind of Entrepreneur, is one of my favorite reads of all time. In the book, he shares everything he learned from starting, growing, and selling the company CD Baby. You can say hello to Derek at Sivers.org. That's S-I-V as in Victor, E-R-S dot O-R-G forward slash contact. In the episode, Derek and I talk about how Derek cultivated a practice of questioning assumptions, why he has what he calls a making room, not a living room, what a controversial blog post taught Derek about handling criticism, why you should distance your private persona from your public persona, what a failed marriage taught Derek about the meaning of failure, why you should separate your decisions from the outcome of those decisions, and finally, how Derek cultivates calm in his life. Before I play you the interview, a quick announcement first. My book, Think Like a Rocket Scientist, Simple Strategies You Can Use to Make Giant Leaps in Work and Life, is now out. It's already a number one bestseller on Amazon. And we have a special offer for the listeners of this episode with Derek Sivers. If you order the book and forward your receipts to rocket at ozanbarol.com, that's rocket at O-Z-A-N-V-I-S-M-V-I-C-T-O-R-O-L.com and mention Derek, you will get two special bonuses. The first is a video training with a behind-the-scenes look at my productivity system. And the second is a pack of 12 three-minute quick-hit videos based on the book, Think Like a Rocket Scientist. These are actionable strategies that you can implement right away. And again, to get the bonuses, order the book from your favorite bookseller and forward your receipts to rocket at ozambarol.com and mention Derek. Without further ado... Please enjoy my conversation with Derek Sivers, and thank you as always for listening. Derek, welcome to the show. Thank you. You know, I think I heard about you, it must have been five or six years ago, I think it was from Seth Godin, but I picked up a copy of your book, which I'm holding in my hands right now, Anything You Want, 40 Lessons for a New Kind of Entrepreneur. It's less than 100 pages long, so it's the kind of book that you can read in an hour or two, and it's still to this day the only book where I forced myself to stop <laughs> and, I, and I limited myself to one one lesson or one chapter a day. So I read the book over the course of 40 days because it was this like delicious feast and I wanted to enjoy every bite and not just like binge on it and finish it right away. Uh, so it's such a pleasure to be speaking with you. Thanks. That's a great compliment. I appreciate it. So you are a master at questioning assumptions, or as you put it in a blog post, singing the counter melody to other people's melodies. I'd love to chat with you about how you cultivate the practice of questioning assumptions. And relatedly, how do you determine what to question? And the assumption there being that 
going through life questioning everything we do from what we eat for breakfast to the, the route that you take to work would be really inefficient. So habits and routines conserve decision-making power. So how do you determine what to question? And then once you determine what to question, how do you actually practice questioning assumptions? It's a great question. And I'm going to start with the most trivial thing that you just reminded me of that I haven't thought of in 20 years. When you talked about like habits and routines, when I was 18 and I was at the supermarket and I put my groceries on that black belt that, you know, they roll up to the checkout counter and I just started stacking them up in like a funny pyramid kind of way. Just why not play with it? And I didn't think anything of it until like two months later, somebody stopped me on the street. He said, hey, wait, I know you from somewhere. I said, I don't know you. I'm sorry. And he said, no, I know you're the dude that stacked up your your groceries at the grocery store last week. <laughs> I said, what? Yeah, I said, uh, yeah, what, how do you remember that? He goes, I don't know. I just thought that was really cool. I never saw somebody do that with their groceries before. <laughs> I was like, oh, I wasn't trying to be cool. I didn't know anybody was watching. I think I set the bar very, very low for what to question. <laughs> That's why I told that story. Yeah. I just enjoy process of thinking if there's another way to think about this. So the obvious things to start questioning, the obvious assumptions to start questioning are when something's not working. Like if, if you're doing something that you need to do, but it's exhausting you or you're not getting the results you want, or it's not fun anymore, then you should be questioning that assumption or the assumptions that lead you to think that you need to be doing that. So for example, in that case would be like looking for a mentor. I know there are some people that are always looking for a mentor and it's just not working. So that's something that you should be questioning. Do you need a mentor? Why do you need a mentor? Then there's the next obvious one, which is what could be better. Meaning that if you feel something has a lot of unnecessary rituals or fuss to it, or if something's overcomplicated or just could be improved in any way, then you should question the assumptions around that. So a recent example of that is I suddenly felt that everybody around me was quoting others too often. I felt like people that I know and like were trying to make a point, but they were spewing bibliographies out of their mouth every time they speak. You know, this philosopher said this and that, and this book said that, and oh, I was reading something the other day and this in the Washington Post and da-da-da-da-da, the columnist said this. And I felt like, come on, that's a lot of verbal garbage. Just get to the point. Another category would be just if something just feels wrong, like it just seems to offend your sensibility somehow, right? Like to me, it feels wrong that so many people are dependent on the cloud right now. Uh, they put all their stuff in the cloud and they say, the cloud's going to take care of my stuff as if Google cares about you. You know, I worry when I get, when I check my email inbox and like 90% of all emails I get are at gmail.com, at gmail.com, at gmail.com. I think Something feels wrong about that. It's, mm -hmm. I don't like this. I mean, that should be questioned. But the last one, and then my favorite, is just curiosity. It's just you look at almost anything in life, short of stacking your groceries on the belt, and just say, like, <laughs> how could this be different? Mm -hmm. I don't know. I'm, I'm sitting here in my house right now, so I'm looking over my shoulder at this room that most people would call the living room of the house. but when I was questioning if I even wanted to really buy a house or not, when we moved to England, 
I knew that there, that this house I had my eye on had this great big room in the middle. And I just thought like, I don't know, I mean, living room, but I, I don't watch TV. I don't sit on couches. I don't hang out. I'm just always making things. And, and my kids the same way. Like when we play, we're constantly making things. And I went, oh my God, that's not the living room. That's the making room. <laughs> I was like, there will be no couches in that room. It will be all like making tables, you know? And as soon as I had that thought, it's like, okay, yes, now I want that house. And this is going to be a making house with a making room. And this is like, just, it's like, there was nothing wrong with a living room, but I was just kind of curious. Like, is there a different way to treat your house? Instead of thinking of it as a place to relax and veg out and do nothing, can your whole house be turned into a place that exists to create, you know? Anyway, so those are four categories for you, but you asked how to cultivate the practice. Is that right? Right. Yep. I think questioning assumptions can be done in conversation with friends, but I find it most useful if you're, if you're writing in a private journal, because even among friends, you might find yourself accidentally holding on to a point of view, just because we all have kind of this social instinct to defend our point of view. If somebody says, oh yeah, well, why do you think that? Mm. You just get almost a visceral physical reaction. You go like, <laughs> you know, defensive, you put up your shield, you suddenly are defending a point of view that you don't actually really care about that much, but it's just a human instinct or something. Right. So instead writing privately in a journal, I've found to be the most useful because then you can, you can even write a simple sentence like, well, of course a house has a living room. Mm. And as soon as you see yourself write a sentence, you can say, does it? <laughs> Does it need to? Why is that? Do I want to spend my life sitting on a couch watching things? No. What do I want to spend my life doing? A great question to ask is what's the real point? Mm. Like trying to boil things down to their essence. And then whatever you answer to that, ask yourself, well, what's the real point of that? And see how far down you can go to the essence of why we do this thing anyway. Like I'll, I'll go back to the examples I said two minutes ago. People that are always looking for a mentor. Well, why do you think you need a mentor? And it might be because you want someone to tell you what to do. So you can try to make smart choices, not dumb choices. Think, well, does that need to be a, a person that's going to spend many, many, many hours with you over the course of years getting to know you deeply? Or can that wisdom come from a book? You just say, well, where does wisdom come from? Or let's look at my history. Where have I gotten the best ideas that I've ever had? Was it from somebody that got to know me really well for a long time and then gave me some bit of holy wisdom? Yeah. Mm. No, it hasn't. So why do I think I need that? You know, so these are just the kind of, it's a good way to question that assumption. What's the other example I gave? Oh, quoting others. Right. How I said, I, I felt like too many people around me were spewing bibliographies. Well, what's the real point of that? The real point I think is they want to share some interesting and useful ideas that they heard. But the assumption is that they need to give credit for everything they're sharing that is not their own. I think, well, why, why do we think we need to do that? I think, well, we don't want to be seen as plagiarizing or stealing from others, but it's just, you know, we're not writing academic journals. Right. Did we just get that habit from school that where we have to list all of our sources or so questioning that and asking like, well, how would it look if we did none of that? Like if I heard an idea and I like it, can I just say that idea without crediting the source? How would that go? Is that evil? Is that okay? <laughs> is that considerate? And then lastly, um, yeah, I talked about, uh, depending on the cloud and, you know, what's the real point of that? People just want to share their photos or contacts or documents and just have them available on a server that's outside of their device. Well, do you need to 
use Google or Facebook for that or can you do anything? So, et cetera. And then the just curious category. My favorite example of that is when I was in New Zealand or yeah, I was in the Auckland airport in New Zealand and I saw the globe of our earth rotated around so that New Zealand was on top instead of the bottom. Mm. And all these other countries from Canada and Russia and Europe and everybody else was on the bottom. And I thought, yeah, it's a circle. Why did we just assume that, <laughs> you know, th- th- this has to be up and this has to be down? I was like, yeah, it's a circle. You can look at a circle from any perspective. It was like, this map is also correct. And so I actually did my first and still my favorite TED Talk on this subject. If you go to TED.com and search for Derek Sivers, the talk is called Weird or Just Different. And this is still like my single favorite fascination in the world is to just find things like that, that we can think of in an absolutely opposite way from what we're used to thinking of it. And it's still correct. Like the opposite is also true. The globe of the earth, it's also true when you look at it from over here and things like that. And so in my little tiny TED talk, I think it's like three minutes long. I give my favorite examples of that. And in going back to what you're doing in your private journal, it almost sounded to me like you're like applying the scientific method to your ideas. Like you write down a hypothesis, mm. right? A living room is for living. And then you question that hypothesis. You try right. to falsify it. And then you write something down to question it. And then you question what you wrote down, right? It's just a continuous cycle of questioning and questioning and questioning until you get to the essence of something. Right. The only difference I'd say with the scientific method is I'm not trying to prove that this is right. Sure. I'm not trying to find a right answer. I'm actually deliberately just looking for a different approach just for fun. Sometimes, yeah, like my examples of, um, you know, if something's just not effective, if I'm doing something that's not working or I feel something could be better, then yeah, I'm trying to look for something that seems better than the current way. But yeah, often it's just like just looking for another different approach just for the sake of being different. It's just fun. Yeah. I love that. And there are two, two little things I wanted to mention. One is, and I'll put this in the show notes, but Derek has a great post on seeking mentors or finding mentors, uh, which, which I think is definitely worth reading. I'll mention that in the, in the show notes and then quotes or quoting other people. I want to put a thumbtack on that and, and return to that later, because I think it's going to foreshadow another question that that's coming up, Derek. <laughs> and I think so part of the reason why I think people, because I, I noticed this too, particularly my students, I teach law students and they, I mean, one of the biggest problems is overquoting. They're constantly quoting other sources. And I think partially it's because of what you mentioned, which is avoiding the potential plagiarism issues or even the appearance of it. And the other part, I think, is is protecting themselves. Because if yeah. they say, like, this important person said this, then it's a way of deflecting potential criticism because it, then if they're attacked, then they can retreat and say, well, I'm relying on this other, more important, smarter person's views and not my own. I'm going to ask you about criticism and critique later on. So I just wanted to flag that. <laughs> you can ask me now if you want. There. <laughs> Do you want to ask me now? Sure. Yeah. Why, why, why don't we do that? Go ahead. What's on your mind? One of the biggest <laughs> obstacles that people face in putting themselves out there is worrying about what other people are going to say about them, right? You know, if I start a blog, if I start a business, 
and it fails, what if others point and laugh? What if I make a fool out of myself? What is my family, my friends, what are they going to think? So I'd love for you to, to take us back to a moment in your life when you faced some serious criticism and uh, walk us through that moment and share with us what happened and, and how you approached handling critique. I should start by saying that everybody should have an internet name that is not their real name. Everybody should have a stage name, a pen name. <laughs> I think it's really handy that Bono calls himself Bono, you know, the singer from U2. His real name is Paul Hewson, but if people are attacking Bono, he knows that they're attacking a character that he created, that it's not him. Like the real Paul Hewson sits at home having tea with his family. And then he puts on the shades and the outfit and goes up on stage to be Bono. And if somebody criticizes that, he knows it's not him. Everything changed for me in, in one minute. And here was the minute. <laughs> I had written a blog post about the Ruby on Rails programming system. It's funny, you wouldn't expect it, but programmers get almost like religion when they get into a certain language. Like if programming, you know, if they use the Ruby language, they're convinced that Ruby is the best language. And if somebody uses Haskell, they're like, no, no, Haskell's the best. How dare you say it's not? So I had written all of my software for my company, CD Baby, in the PHP programming language at first, because it's all I knew. Then I tried to rewrite everything in Ruby on Rails for two years. And after two years, I gave up and felt like, no, I'm just going to leave it in PHP. It was fine. So I posted a little blog post that I thought nobody would see saying seven reasons why I switched back to PHP after two years on Rails. And it was before I had a public blog. It was even on like on a little technical blog on O'Reilly.com where I used to blog. But like I had like zero viewers, but two programmers over two months had asked me, hey, dude, why did you switch back to PHP? And I got sick of answering the question by email. So I just wrote a little blog post basically to share with the occasional nerd who wanted to know. So I went to bed. Coincidentally, it was my birthday. <laughs> and when I woke up in the morning, all of the tech news sites had my article at like number one. And it was like voted up, you know, like Reddit or Slashdot or all these like programmer sites. And it was just filled with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people attacking it and just attacking me and insulting me and just saying, you know, this kind of mouth breathing idiot is the biggest problem with the world today. You know, you know, the guy obviously can't code his way out of a paper bag. If he do it, if he could, he would know the blah, blah, blah. And for like 15 minutes, I was really upset. I was like, what the hell, guys? Like, <laughs> I was just trying to share my thoughts. I was like, wow, this is really mean. I was like, God, people are being really mean. And it was just, you know, the, the comments, there were hundreds of comments that were like 95% negative. Every now and then there might be one little voice in there saying something positive and then everybody else would attack that voice. And it was after maybe 10 minutes of pain looking at this, that like something clicked in my brain. I was like, wait a minute, these people don't know me. Like they also don't know my code. They're telling me I'm a bad programmer, but none of my code is public. So they're not even really talking about me. They're talking about themselves or their beliefs, or they're just spewing stuff to justify their decision in learning Ruby on Rails. And how dare somebody criticize the last two years of my effort learning Rails and tell me that it wasn't completely worth it. And I just realized, yeah, that they weren't talking about me. Yes, it was my name or it was an article I wrote out there, but they were attacking like a mannequin of me, like a cardboard cutout in the shape of me. That's what they were 
throwing tomatoes at. And just in that one split second, it's just like something detached in my head. And I realized that my public self is not the real me. The real me is the Derek that a few dear friends and family know. But Derek Sivers, that's like, that's a public character. That, and I put stuff out into the world. I write articles and books and videos, whatever, and I put it out there. But it's all just a public creation. And if you're attacking Derek Sivers, that's why I said, I wish I would, you know, in hindsight, I wish I would have had a stage name. If it's not too late for you, if you haven't started to put a ton of stuff out into the world, go get yourself a stage name and use that publicly so that if people attack it, you know it's not the real you. And you can just shrug it off as feedback. You know, like if I put an article out into the world and everybody attacks it, I go, okay, I need to think through my thoughts on that subject because it's clearly being misunderstood. But I never for one second think that they're attacking me, even if they think they are, <laughs> right? I know it's just something I've shared publicly. But then the side effect of this is what you'll realize if you go through the same process, you'll realize a minute later that this means that you also can't take any praise personally mm. either. That when people say really nice things about me in public, it also has no effect on me. I'm just disconnected from all of it. So any praise, any criticism, it's just, I just take it as just kind of feedback on something I've created. None of it is about me. Yeah. And you can't do it selectively, as you're saying. So you, you can't just, yeah. you can't take the compliments and the praise and then reject the criticism. Exactly. Yeah. yeah you have to treat both the same. Yeah. It reminded me of a, a verbal tweak that I implemented in my life when I first started out in academia and I would present at conferences. I would get up and say, I argue X, Y, and Z. And then when people would attack my arguments, I would get defensive because when I say I argue, it almost sounds like my arguments and my beliefs are tied up with my identity. And so when those arguments and beliefs are being attacked, it's almost like my identity is being attacked. Ah. And I think this is, by the way, why so many disagreements in the real world turn into these existential death matches. You know, we have people <laughs> who are going around telling themselves that they are paleo or they're vegan or they're crossfitters. I think those labels tend to get tied up with, with ego and identity. And so when you've got these disagreements, then it's almost like you're trying to convince the other person to change their identity, which is a, which yeah. is a really hard, hard sell. So I, I switched from saying, I argue to this paper hypothesizes. Ah. <laughs> and that's, that simple verbal tweak was, was really useful in separating me from the products of me, the ideas of me. And I think your approach is even better because it takes us a step further. There's a difference between the private me and the mannequin of me, the public me. And as long as you're doing that for both criticism and praise, I think that's a great way of, of handling critique that comes your way. And a different name would help. <laughs> yes, different name would help. <laughs> my, my son is only eight years old. And I, uh, the first time, I think it was like a year ago when he wanted to create an account on Minecraft or something like that. I was like, okay, well, it's time to make up your internet name. And he goes, internet name? And I said, oh yeah, you can't use your real name on the internet. You always have to use a different name on the internet. And it's just, just become like a truism of the household, right? Like, yeah, I think it's really healthy. Right. Okay. Next question. We're going to switch to failures now. Uh, what is one, or you can pick more than one, what are more, maybe let's say one to three <laughs> of the most valuable failures you've had in your life? 
and what makes them valuable. And, and within the context of that question, I'd also love to hear about your personal definition of a failure because I've been doing the show for now over two years and people have different views and different definitions of, of failure. And, and I'd love to hear yours. I kind of don't believe in failure because it seems to imply the, that it's, it's ended, that it's mm. over. Failure seems to imply that because if it's, if you think of it as still ongoing, it's not failed. So even even if you want to pick the most obvious example of a failed business, well, if you learn something from that one and you're going to try something else, then you could even say that that wasn't a failed business. Let's actually, so my first marriage, even saying those words, I need to qualify that. She was my girlfriend and she was from Sweden and she kept coming to visit me. And so the third time she came to visit me, immigration at the airport told her, I'm on the verge of rejecting you, but I'm going to let you in this one last time. But I'm putting a note on your account here. You're not allowed into America anymore unless you have a work visa or a marriage visa or something. You've just been visiting too much. Something's up. This is your last time in America unless you enter with a valid visa next time. So I actually tried to get my company to hire her, but it was going to be like a year and a half of paperwork. So we're just like, grumble, grumble, grumble. We went down to City Hall and just like signed a piece of paper. We're like, there, we're married. Leave us alone. So yes, she was my girlfriend, but no, we didn't make this decision to spend our whole lives together. So we stayed together for six and a half years and it was awesome. We were just really, really happy, almost weirdly happy. Like we didn't even fight in six and a half years together. We had one disagreement about whose turn it was to clean the bathroom that day, but neither of us like in six and a half years fought about anything else. We just got along so well. We were so happy together. It was just great. But our lives were going these slightly different directions. She wanted to stay in LA and throw herself into film school. I wanted to be up in Portland working on CD Baby. And we could just tell that we were kind of drifting different directions. And so, yeah, we went out to a movie one day and after the movie, uh, we were just on the Third Street Promenade in Santa Monica, California. And we got two lemonades and we just looked at each other and I don't even know who said it first, but one of us said, do you want to break up? Mm. And the other one said, yeah, do you? And yeah, I think so. You're not, you're not upset. No. Are you, are you, are you hurt? No, I'm good. Like, wow. Yeah, let's do this. All right. I think we just broke up. Cool. <laughs> we like did a little cheers with our lemonades and we walked home and yeah, that night while she was asleep, I was just so excited that I was onto a new chapter of my life that I packed my bags and hopped in the car and, you know, kissed her goodbye while she was sleeping and never saw her again. And it was just, it was a great marriage. Mm. It was for six and a half years, but a lot of people would call that a failed marriage. Sure. But it wasn't, it was great. It was a great six and a half year long marriage. So now let's talk about songwriting. Most songwriters, most good songwriters, definitely all professional songwriters write many, many songs. And most of them don't become a big hit. Most of those songs, not many people like very much. But are all of those songs failures? Of course not. You don't say that's a failed song. <laughs> that's like, <laughs> you know, so condemning. So instead, you just say, well, those weren't a big hit. But like, so what? Who expects every song to be a big hit, right? right? But the big idea is like, I've got more and I'm still writing more and I'm constantly writing songs. I've written a hundred songs. And you know, one of them was a big hit and 99 weren't. Doesn't mean those 99 are failures. So then I think of Dandelions. 
maybe because I'm surrounded by them right now in April. <laughs> so you blow on the dandelion and like a hundred little seeds go off into the wind. The ones that don't turn into more dandelions, are they failed seeds? Of course not. Because quantity prevents the failure mindset. Mm. You can even make lots of businesses. Oh, wait, actually, wait. I'm going to go back to the songwriting comparison. The only songwriters I ever met that I think that would have said that a song was a failure were the occasional oddballs I would meet that only wrote like one song. Mm. And they wrote this song about their mother or their wife or something. And they were trying to make this song a hit. And they went around LA and they went around New York and they went around Nashville trying to make this song a hit. And nobody wanted this one song. And they were putting so much effort into this one song. They'd get really upset when people didn't like it. And so that to me is like more of like the failure mindset. You, like, you have to believe that this one thing is everything and everything's riding on this one thing. You have to think that in order to think that something is a failure. So I even think about this with businesses. You can make lots of businesses. You can just kind of take the songwriter approach to businesses and start, you know, I don't know, four businesses a year. <laughs> like, I don't know what it would what whatever somebody's maximum would be. If 25 of those businesses didn't become a big hit, does that mean that they were all failures? Probably not, because you just think of it in a different way when you're thinking in terms of quantity. So yeah, quantity prevents the failure mindset. I got to ask Jeff Bezos once how Amazon seems to make no mistakes. Like I asked him, I said, like, it just seems like everything you do is a big hit. And he just instantly was like, well, no. And he just off the top of his head, he named like seven failures off the top of his head. He's like, well, the A9 is, and this didn't work and that didn't work. And, this. and for each one of those, I went, oh yeah, I'd forgotten about those. They were mm -hmm. things that I had actually heard of. Well, I think half of them I had heard of and I kind of forgot about them. They just drifted into history and nobody mentioned them anymore. So that was also interesting to notice that it's like, Maybe you have one company, but you try lots of things inside of it. Maybe it doesn't have to be that you launch an absolutely new company every few months. But if you just think of yourself as in the quantity business, you can just keep trying many things. And hey, if you're going to put something in the show notes or like link to a story, find the story from the book called Art and Fear. And it's a story about 50 pounds of pots. 50 pounds of pots? Yeah. Link okay. to that story. And yeah. Uh, Damn it, I just realized I'm gonna, it would be rude of me to not just quickly tell the story. But uh, the story uh, goes that it was a pottery class. The teacher decided to do an interesting experiment. He stood in front of the class and split the class into half. He said, okay, those of you on the left half of the room, for this whole semester, you're going to work on one piece of pottery for this whole semester. And at the end of the semester, I'm going to grade you on how perfect that or how great that one piece of pottery is. Those of you on the right half of the room, just... Do whatever the hell you want. Just create, create, create as much as you can. And at the end of the year, I'm not even going to look at what you make. I'm just going to grade you by weighing how much you've made. And your grade will be dependent on the weight of how much you've made. All right, go. <laughs> and at the end of the year, they actually brought in like an objective outside judge to judge all the pottery in the room, not knowing which half of the class it came from. And the pieces of pottery that the outside expert found to be the best were, of course, as you can predict, <laughs> the ones that were in group B, the people that were just creating quantity. Because they just made and made and made and made more and more and more and more, they became better potters than the people just focusing on one. So yeah, sorry, a bunch of ideas around 
failure. I, I, sorry, I dove into the rabbit hole too far on that. No, no, no. I think I think I think that I think that's that's really important. So quantity is the best predictor of of quality. And then I just want to underline something else you said, uh, Derek, about how, with respect to your question for Jeff Bezos. We tend to remember the highs and not the lows. Yeah. You know, we don't remember the people forgot about the Amazon Fire phone, which like cost <laughs> the company so much money. It was a colossal right. failure. Yeah. You don't remember that. I it also reminded me of uh Tom Hanks is one of my favorite actors, and I was looking up for some reason a couple of weeks ago some of the movies that he was in. And he's been in some awful awful movies but like when you think of tom hanks you think of you know philadelphia and, and apollo yeah. 13 you don't think of the the man with one red shoe which is like one of the one of the awful movies he made but but i think so mm -hmm. so that's important to keep in mind too it's quantity leads to quality but also the quote-unquote failures or the lows tend not to get remembered people tend to remember the hits so on that note when i think about my biggest regrets in life. I actually keep a journal. I, actually, I, I have this thing called my topic journals or thoughts on journals. I used to just write a daily diary, but I found that there were certain subjects I kept coming back to. So I started creating new text files like per topic. So I have a journal called regrets. And every time I do something I regret, I write about it in that journal. And so I, it's like a catalog of my regrets. And for each one, like, you know, what happened? <laughs> what do I wish would have happened? What do I regret doing? What will I not do next time? One of my biggest regrets of all time, it's a little weird to talk about, but I sold CD Baby in August of 2008. It was an all cash deal. It was not like a stock or anything like that. So I just suddenly had a bunch of cash. And I had been reading investing books for the last six months thinking, okay, well, I have to learn about investing now. Not like speculative investing, not like Silicon Valley angel kind of investing, but more just like old tried and true wisdom about passive investing into broad indexes of the entire world economy, right? And one of the truisms I learned in that, I think, I believe it was a Warren Buffett quote that said something like, when everybody's screaming, we're all going to die, it's a good time to buy. Mm. And this idea was like, he said, you should be the most optimistic when everybody's scared and you should be the most scared when everyone's optimistic. Right. So I mentioned that I sold the company in August, 2008, because it was weirdly lucky timing that just weeks later became like began this financial collapse. It was just like collapse, collapse, collapse. It was just dominoes falling everywhere. And so I did nothing. I sat in all cash, but I also hired an investment advisor, just somebody to kind of bounce ideas off of because I was new to having money. I was totally new to investing. I'd never invested anything in my life. I never had an investment account. So I opened an account at Vanguard and I had this guy that we would just have like a monthly call to bounce ideas off of. So in, I think it was like February or March, 2019, Sorry, no, that was last year. Sorry, 2009. Sorry, it was in uh, February, March 2009. That was like the cover of Time Magazine was, was talking about like the, the next Great Depression and the cover of Newsweek was talking about the, the big dust bowl and The Economist was just like, you know, tighten your buckle. We're in for a long period of doom. And I was like, yeah, you know what? I think it, this is the thing that the wisdom told me about. Like, when everybody's screaming, we're all going to die. This is like, this is peak pessimism. Mm -hmm. I feel like this is now the, the cover of every major story. 
I'm ready to invest now. This is when I want in. (laughs) I've already got my asset allocation decided. I'm going to invest now. So called up the investment advisor. I said, okay, I'm ready. Let's do this. I've got the asset allocation picked. Here's the stocks or the, the mutual funds, the indexes that I want to do. And he talked me out of it. He's like, Derek, I'm telling you, this is why you hired me. This day, we got a long way to go. This thing's going to, you ain't seen nothing yet. This thing's going to fall another 90%. You just mark my words, Derek. This is why you hired me. Don't do anything. Just wait. Don't be foolish. And I was like, no, Stephen, I, like, come on. This might not be the absolute lowest, but I'm ready. We're in times of great pessimism. Everybody's predicting doom. I'm ready. This is the great time to get in. Eric, I'm telling you, you know, this is why you hired me. No, don't do it. And I let him talk me out of it. Mm-hmm. What I did instead is I went to one of those sites like Google Finance or something like that. And I put together my hypothetical portfolio that I would have done. This is my I told you so portfolio or he told me so mm-hmm. portfolio. Like I was curious to see like, okay, well, this is what I wanted to do today. Let me see what happens. And over the next five years, like that, portfolio went up like a thousand percent because I was right. Like it's, if you look at the you know Dow Jones industrial index or whatever, that day that I had the phone call with my investment advisor turned out to be, have been like the exact bottom of the market. So that, that truism held true. When everybody's screaming, we're all going <laughs> to die. It's a good time to buy. I was really mad for you because I just sat in cash and then things, you know, were started skyrocketing up and up and up. So I stayed in cash because now it's like, well, let's wait till they come back down again. And, and eventually I fired the investment advisor. And years later, I kind of humbly admitted that I had made a huge mistake and I got in. So, you know, it's big. It's not like, you know, I cut off my leg. It's fine. But that story was probably longer than it needed to be. But here was the interesting thing is that in this case, I was right and he was wrong. And so I can say, that was a failure. I should have listened to my heart. I should have trusted my gut. I should have listened to the, you know, the lesson I've learned to share with your <laughs> listeners is that I should have trusted my beliefs. Da, da, da. But what if the random meandering of the stock market had gone the opposite way and he was right and I was wrong? Well, then would I still have said that I should have learned those same lessons? No, I would have said, well, boy, it's a good thing I listened to him. I guess it's good not to trust my gut. <laughs> Right. My, you know, our feelings are often wrong. We should listen to the wisdom of our elders. You know, so it made me think about something that I think would be really interesting to talk about for your show, which is the difference between good and bad decisions as being disconnected from good and bad outcomes. That I could have made a good decision that day, and it could have had a bad outcome. Right? Like I could have taken all the wisdom I had learned from all the books and all the investments, I mean, all all of the books about investing and done the wise thing. And it still could have totally tanked. It could have had a bad outcome, but maybe I would have said that was actually still a good decision. Mm. Or I could have made a dumb, crazy, bad decision that day. And I could have like thrown a dart at something or said like, you know what? I really like my new iPhone. So I'm just going to invest in Apple even though I know nothing about the internals of Apple or whether it's a good investment, whether it's overpriced or not, I just like Apple. I'm just going to put all my money on Apple. And then that one investment could have skyrocketed. And I would have said, huh, see, that was a good decision. But no, I think you could objectively say that that was a bad decision, even if the outcome turned out amazing. Like we need a different way of judging or qualifying what's a good decision or bad decision regardless 
of how the outcome turns out. So in applying that in practice, and actually I have a section in my new book where I talk about the, this chapter is called Nothing Fails Like Success. Ah. <laughs> and, and it goes into, uh, goes into basically a series of bad decisions that NASA made in the lead up to the Challenger and Columbia space shuttle disasters. And those bad decisions produced successes. And so they weren't changed until... Well, we ended up with a disaster on our hands in in two very different cases, but the underlying sort of cultural pathology was the same. So one of the things I talk about in that chapter is that the need to conduct postmortems or these investigations after both success and failure. So asking ourselves the same questions after both success and failure, what went right with this failure? What went wrong with this failure? Similarly, what went right with the success and what went wrong with the success? And to the extent that, you know, you had some bad decisions that led to success, those bad decisions need to be corrected going forward. And to the extent that some right decisions, good decisions led to failure, those need to be retained. One thing I struggle with is in applying that in our personal lives, the outcome it's almost like these blinding lights. <laughs> when you got a successful outcome, it becomes really hard to dig in and to resist the tendency to like start popping champagne corks and lighting <laughs> cigars and to actually like dig deep and say, okay, you know what? Like, how do I figure out which of these decisions were bad and which of them were good? I mean, did I get lucky in this instance from a bad decision or did I actually make the right call? Do you have any thoughts on that? I wish that we had an objective and even catchy way to describe what makes a good decision. Mm -hmm. Maybe some kind of like five rules of thumb, like here are the five things that make a good decision. And people could remember that in those moments of decision. I asked my music teacher about this. He's actually a Kimo Williams. I wrote a story about him at sivers.org slash Kimo, K-I-M-O. He was a huge influence on me. He was my music teacher when I was a teenager and we've kept in touch. He's the one that introduced me to this concept of separating the decision from the outcome because I asked about his decision to raise his daughter in central downtown Chicago. And he said, he said, well, you know, it didn't, that definitely didn't get the outcome we wanted. And I said, oh, do you regret the decision? And he said, oh no, it was a good decision. I said, wait, what? but you didn't like the outcome. And yeah, he's the one that introduced me. He goes, yeah, Derek, mm. those are two different things. We made a good decision. So his short definition, uh, just this is off the top of my head. He said something like, we made a, a wise, intelligent decision using the best of our knowledge at the time. It wasn't an off-the-cuff emotional decision. So I think he would describe, yeah, off-the-cuff and emotional are signs of a bad decision making a decision without even trying to gather more information, but just wanting to quickly have this moment of decision be over. So you just, oh, I'll take that one. Then objectively, that is a bad decision, even if it ends up surprisingly having a good outcome. So yeah, it, that his decision to raise his daughter in downtown Chicago didn't get them the outcome they wanted. They, they would have said that that was a bad outcome, but it was a good decision. I just found that a fascinating idea. Yeah. Yeah, I wish that... Uh, you or I or somebody soon will <laughs> popularize and make some catchy way to uh, help us keep it on the tip of our tongue or top of our mind, whether we're making a good or a bad decision. We're coming to the end of our time here, Derek, but it, there's one more question that I'd, I'd love to ask you. You are one of the most relaxed, smart people that I know. 
Uh, I mean, as, as I'm sure that those who are listening still can sense that like soothing, calm quality to your voice. And in my experience, <laughs> intelligence and calm don't go hand in hand. <laughs> the more intelligent people are, the more frantic and, and anxious they get. And and especially in the, we're recording this on April 22nd, uh, in very uncertain and unnerving times with the pandemic. I'd love to hear your thoughts on how you cultivate calm in your life? Any practices that you use that might be helpful to others? Well, for one, I think it's just my nature. I've read a few different books on the subject of happiness, like, you know, people who have studied the subject for decades in universities and done tests and stuff. And I remember hearing that our happiness is 50% genetic, that it's just kind of a roll of the DNA dice, whether you're going to be a happy person or not, at least 50% of your happiness. And that 50% then is of your own volition, your own choices in life or decision to be happy. So I think I got a lucky roll of the dice and I've just always been a happy person. But I do think a lot, a lot, a lot about how to be happy. And the, the feeling I get or kind of the conclusion I've come to so far today <laughs> is that it's all about eliminating obstacles. And sorry, this, I just woke up yesterday morning thinking this thought. I woke up thinking about how I'm here in a little house I did not expect to be in, in a place I did not expect to be in. And, and part of me would like to be somewhere else, but then I think, but I'm happy here. And so I was actually, this is me at like 5.30 in the morning asking myself why. It's like, well, why am I happy? And it's like, I know why I'm happy because there are no obstacles. Meaning if I lived right next door to a paper mill that was spewing the smoke into my window, that would be an obstacle to my happiness. If I was in a place that was unbearably hot and had no air conditioning, that would be an obstacle to my happiness. If I was uh, living upstairs from some party people that wouldn't stop making noise all night and I couldn't sleep, that would be an obstacle to my happiness. But as long as there are no concrete obstacles, then I can be happy just about anywhere. And if mm -hmm. something's troubling me in my mind, I usually stop and ask myself like, well, is this real? Or is it just some memories or some predictions that are freaking me out? Because I think a lot of what people get freaked out about are just the images in their head, right? It's, it's not even real. It's just things that they're picturing. Either they're picturing a prediction of something they think is going to happen that's freaking them out, or they're remembering something that did happen and maybe putting a spin on it or maybe not, but just remembering something freaks them out, predicting something freaks them out, but they're just reacting to images in their head. But if you stop and just look around your physical environment and ask yourself, like, am I in physical pain right now? Mm. No. Then what's really wrong? Nothing. <laughs> I'm, in a, I'm in a room. I have a roof over my head. Like, I'm able to move my limbs. I'm fine. Uh, and so point is, yeah, th my definition of happiness is that uh, it's the state when nothing is wrong. That uh, being calm, relaxed, and happy is your default state when nothing's wrong. And I think a lot of people are always asking themselves what they need to add to their life to be happy. You know, mm -hmm. they look to blogs and podcasts or even shopping sites like wirecutter.com. Tell me, tell me what thing should I get? <laughs> it's actually a common mm -hmm. podcast interviewer question that I hate. Like, what's an item under a hundred dollars? It's improved your life. Like, no, <laughs> don't ask that because I know why you're asking that. You think you're trying to make people want some item, you're trying to 
like appeal to this side of people that would thinks mm. that there's just going to be some thing that they can go buy that, ah, now I have this thing now, now <laughs> I can be happy, but no, instead look at what you could remove. Don't add, subtract, look at the obstacles in your life, whether it's people in your life that are a source of misery or things that are presenting, I mean, preventing your physical comfort that, that these physical obstacles like Lee Kuan Yew, the founder of Singapore, when interviewed once, somebody asked him, what do you think is the biggest technological innovation in the last hundred years? I mean, hundred years, you know, could have been the automobile. He said, no, air conditioning. Mm. And the audience laughed. He said, I'm serious. He said, Singapore was an unbearable place to work before air conditioning. He said, now mm. with air conditioning, we're one of the most prosperous countries in the world because we can all work and throw ourselves into a work without dripping all over and feeling miserable and exhausted. And so yeah, air conditioning, something as simple as air conditioning can be the difference between living a fulfilled, self-actualized, prosperous life and not. So anyway, yeah, don't ask yourself what you should add. Think of what you could subtract in your life that would take away the obstacles. And then, yeah, being calm, relaxed, and happy is your default state when nothing's wrong. And I encourage everyone to check out Derek's very minimalist website, which I think exemplifies the <laughs> the, I have uh, removed the all what the can obstacles. I subtract? Yes. <laughs> well, Derek, this was so much fun. Thank you so much for for joining us. If um, people want to get in touch with you, want to check out your work, uh, what's the best way for them to do that? Just go to sivers.org, S-I-V-E-R-S dot O-R-G. Yeah, my favorite thing is when people introduce themselves and say hello. And so, yeah, there's a, my email address is out there on the site. Just click contact and send me an email and introduce yourself. Great. We'll put all of that into the show notes, Derek. Thank you so much again. Thanks, Ozan. Hi, everyone. Thanks for listening. Two things before you take off. First, if you don't want to miss out on future episodes of Famous Failures, please subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you're listening on and be sure to leave a review on iTunes or Google Play. Second, if you'd like to join thousands of others who receive a short email from me each Thursday with a list of articles, books, tools, quotes, and other gems that help you discover how extraordinary thinking produces extraordinary results, you can text my first name, which is Ozan, that's spelled O-Z-A-N, to 345-345. So once again, that's my first name, Ozan, O-Z-A-N, to 345-345. Or if you're in front of your computer, you can head over to ozanvarol.com and drop your email address. If you act now, you'll also get a free ebook called The Contrarian Handbook, Eight Principles to Innovate Your Thinking. As always, thank you for listening and see you next time.